This episode is brought to you by Daily Aliyah, an incredibly practical new book by Rabbi Shlomo Ressler presenting a Torah insight corresponding to each Aliyah of every Parsha. Make the Torah our most precious gift a part of your daily life. Allow its timeless message to inspire you and inform your day. Whether you're a seasoned learner or just starting, this unique book will empower you to reflect, introspect, and engage with the Torah by focusing on just one Aliyah a day. Order your copy of Daily Aliyah at dailyaliyah.org today. That's dailyaliyah, A-L-I-Y-A-H dot org. Proceeds go to support the work of daily giving. Jewish Money Matters, episode 351, Ask Yael. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. This week, we had a replay of a great interview with the illustrious Rabbi Simon Jacobson. I decided to play that episode because I was getting a lot of messages and having a lot of conversations about the interplay between this idea that our livelihood is being decided during these 10 days of Teshuvah, the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and our own spiritual work during the year, our prayers and other spiritual endeavors. Can we change what's been allotted or can we not? That's the big question. So if you haven't heard it, um, if you haven't heard the episode yet, Rabbi Jacobson explains this on the episode and much more. It's a great episode. It is well worth your time. My time this week was spent doing incredible work for Maximize, looking through applications and um, looking at enrollment with my partner and co-host Joyce Azria on this program. We were enrolling people in the program and it's just been so amazing to see it take shape so nicely. It's beautiful to start seeing the picture of the entrepreneurs and the businesses that we have inside the program, like the bigger picture and start seeing our curriculum and say, oh, what we should add this, we should take this, we should tweak that. So it's really nice. Maximize if you didn't know, it's a six-month business mastermind where we're going to help you take your existing business to the next level of income growth. We're breaking through that income ceiling, getting you unstuck, bringing back the joy and the ease to your business, finding, getting you back in that that vision and realizing that vision that you originally had and expanding that. Because sometimes, you know, we've heard so many times from so many entrepreneurs, and you recently heard it here on the podcast from Natalie Garzon herself, is we get to the a point in the business and it's that point where you're ready to scale when overwhelm hits and it hits hard and and we get really stuck because there's this overwhelming point where the strategy and the mindset that got you to where you are today are not helping you but they're actually stifling your growth and we often don't even recognize that that that's what's happening so we're here here to help you mindset strategy we're doing it we're doing it all because We know you started your business to maximize your potential, to maximize your impact, and to maximize your wealth. And you know, I'm all about that. (laughs) So let's make that happen. Apply to maximize at yaeltrush.com forward slash maximize. Yes, it's by application only. So if you're interested, fill out the application at yaeltrush.com forward slash maximize, and we will get back to you 
pretty soon, within 24 hours, I would say. I think that's the longer, the longest it took us, although I had a lot of applications earlier than the, during this week. Anyway, it's been a very, very exciting process. It's not going to take us more than 24 hours to get back to you. It's been very exciting to go through the applications, to admit people, to see the enrollment and the cohort taking shape. We're really, really looking forward to spending six months with those of you who joined this immersive business experience. All right, so let's head over to the Apple Podcast Review and Ratings page all the way down in the, well, down down under <laughs> Australia. And you know what that means, right? It means that I didn't see any reviews on the US page. I know, I know. It's this, this this Apple Podcast thing, I don't know. It used to be iTunes, Apple Podcast. I don't, I don't understand the collection of these reviews. But the bottom line is, I know you're out there, listeners, because I see the numbers. And yes, this podcast is growing and it's growing a lot. So I'm very, very thankful. Thankful to God for that and thankful to you for that because <laughs> you're doing it. You're listening to the show. Can I get you to leave a review, please? It's so super easy. <laughs> it really is. Um, you just have to kind of scroll down your podcast app on Apple and leave a review and rating. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and say thank you to our friend, R.B. Alpro in Australia, who left a review earlier this year. And I'm sorry I missed it, but I guess I forgot that I have to go to the Apple podcast review section of other countries. There's a little trick on how to do that. But um, unless you're a podcast host, you probably don't need to know that trick. Anyway, this person says, great podcast. They left a five-star review. Thank you for all you do. Short and sweet. That was it. Great podcast. Thank you for all you do. Thanks, RB Alpro. It's my absolute pleasure. I think I said that last week. It really is a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad you enjoy the show. Please email me, yael at yaeltrush.com, or DM me on Instagram or anywhere else, pretty much, and let me know that you're the RB Alpro who left the review, and I'll send you a link for us to connect. Our first question today comes from Dania via Instagram. Yael, were there any wealthy, abundant women in the Torah? <laughs> this is such a fun question, Dania. The short of it is yes. The answer is yes. Whether they were independently wealthy or that wealth was tied to their husband's or their father's wealth is another matter. However, for context, let's remember that even in this country, the US I'm talking about, women's financial autonomy and independence is a fairly recent phenomenon. I mean, women couldn't get a credit card in this country up until 1974. That's I know that might seem like a long time ago to you guys, but it's not. I mean, I wasn't born yet, but <laughs> but I was about to be born. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Pretty soon after. Anyway, and up until the 1920s, most banks didn't provide women with an account of their own, believe it or not. So, you know, so I was, you know, I was like thinking about this in the context of, you know, history. Before 1848, women didn't have the ability to enter legal contracts, no contracts, they couldn't own property, they couldn't collect rent, they couldn't receive individual earnings, everything was tied to a husband or a father. So now let's go into the Torah question. So that was for a little bit of context here. 
a few things come to mind. And again, you know, this is not like my forte or anything, but I thought it was a really interesting question. And of course, anything Jewish, I'm, I'm all about. So I, I started to think what came to mind. I also asked my husband a little bit, and he gave me a few reminders. These are in no particular order. One that comes to mind is on Tisha B'Av, we read about a lady by the name of Marta. Marta was one of the wealthiest women in Jerusalem. She was the daughter of a man, Baitus, Baitus, um, during the siege of Jerusalem. And she, there's a story that is told that we read in, uh, we read on Tisha B'Av. Uh, the Talmud t- tells a story about a servant uh, that she sent her a servant to purchase some of the finest flour, which is what she was used to. The servant went out, and though he searched high and low, he wasn't able to find anything. And so he reported this back to, you know, his, um, to this woman, Ma- uh, Marta. And he had told, he told her that there was a small quantity of inferior flour, inferior grade flour available. So she's like, okay, so go get it. Uh, and by the time he reached the market, that also was gone. And, you know, uh, he came back and she sent them again. There's this back and forth and by desperate in the end, he doesn't find it. She herself gets desperate and she goes out to look for food herself. And some say that she went out barefoot, even though she'd never touched the ground or she went out and insert her slippers, whatever it is, she stepped on a piece of, you know, um, not such nice things. And there's also, you know, different commentary as, as to what it was, but she died um, during that. So that's one woman who comes to mind who was described as, as being extremely wealthy. There's also the daughter of Nakdimon Ben-Gurion, who was one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. And the story in the Talmud is that actually, Rabbi, I was Yohanan ben Zakkai. Um, bumps into her, finds her, I think it's in the outskirts of Jerusalem. Um, and she sees this woman looking for food um, in the garbage and she asks for help. And when she he asked her who, who she's the daughter of or what, who her father is, and when she says he was completely taken aback and amazed because her father was known for his wealth. And he said, what happened to all of your father's wealth? And then she gives this very uh, famous um, mashal, this very famous um, uh, parable of, of Melach Mamon Chaser, of a person wants salt, his money, um, and he wants, if a person not wants that, wants to salt his money, meaning salt is a preservative. So if a person wants to preserve his money um, to make it be long lasting, he should he should reduce his his assets by giving some tzedakah. So it's it's a famous story. She answers with this with this this parable, Melach Mamon Chaser, referring to tzedakah, meaning that apparently her father did not properly preserve his money because he didn't give tzedakah. He didn't properly observe the mitzvah of tzedakah, and that's why. As a result, his fortunes were not preserved. That's how she was reduced to the state of poverty. There's there's more commentary on this because Nat Kiman was known to give a lot of, of charity. So then the Talmud concludes that it wasn't in the amount that was befitting his vast wealth. It wasn't that he didn't give charity, but... Uh, a person of his amount of wealth should have been given more. In any case, that's another person comes to mind. 
Also, there is Rachel, the daughter of Kalva Savua, the wife of Rabbi Akiva. Um, her father, Kalva Savua, was also one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. She was wealthy. And when she decided that she was going to marry Rabbi Akiva, um, even if her father didn't approve of her marrying a poor, unlearned man, her father disowned her. When she decided she was going to do it, her father disowned her. She lived in poverty for 24 years. And then after Rabbi Akiva came back with 24,000 students and Kava Savua recognized uh, his mistake, I, I believe he took her and her husband back and her wealth was restored. So there's Rachel. There's, of course, Queen Esther. I mean, these are all like things that are coming to my mind. Uh, I'm sure there's more, but there's also Queen Esther. She was, of course, the queen. Uh, I think she also received Haman's estate when he was hung. Additionally, Esther was one of the seven prophetesses of Israel. And this is an important point. In order to have prophecy, one had to be wealthy, materially wealthy. And so the seven prophetesses of Israel were Esther, as I just said, Sarah, Sarah Emenu. Sarah came from a wealthy family and she left all that to go with the rebel of of, of the time, Abraham. Um, and she became she then became a wealthy again, um, along with Abraham. But when Avimelech um gave Abraham gifts, um he he didn't just give Abraham gifts, um, but also he gave her, Avimelech gave her, he gave her some sort of like extravagant adornment showing that just to show that he had never touched her. Uh, you know, you, 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 can, you can look into the story, but Abraham and Sarah became extremely wealthy. Uh, the other prophetesses were, so we mentioned Esther, Sarah, Miriam, Devorah, Devorah the judge, Hannah, whom we just recently read about. She was married to Hannah, also a wealthy man. We just read about her on Rosh Hashanah. Abigail, who became wife to David, uh, but before David was, before she was married to da to David, she was married to a very stingy man. I think that's that's what it says, and that she anyways gave charity. Also, we could talk about Michal, the David's wife, the wife, the daughter of um, of Shaul. Uh, but that's not a prophetess. But continuing with the prophetess, the last of the seven ones is Holda, who had a school for women in Jerusalem, and um, she taught what was pertaining to to women. She was married to a man, uh, I think his name was Shalom, and he had a prominent position in the royal court of King Yoshiyahu, who was a king, uh, a, one of the good kings um, of Israel, who actually did come to Hulda for advice. So anyway, those are the seven prophetesses. So we have this idea that you know, in order to have prophecy, you have to have wealth. Um, Speaking of the matriarchs, we just mentioned um, Sarah, Rivka. Rivka was married to Yitzhak, and Yitzhak came into that marriage with, you know, with the with with Avram's wealth. He came, you know, if you remember the story, Eliezer came with the star, with the will, um, inheriting all of Avram's wealth. And remember that again, Avram was the, you know, Rabbi Gordon calls him the Bill Gates of the time, and I guess now we would say the I don't know Elon Musk. <laughs> just just bad examples, but you get the point, right? So he's an extremely wealthy man. So um, Rivka marries Yitzhak, who was the most eligible bachelor of the time. Not 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 only because he was coming from such fine spiritual pedigree, but you know he also came with a big fat bank account. I guess um, if you think about the Jews leaving Mitzrayim, Egypt. Everyone had 90 donkeys laden with gold and silver that was taken from the Egyptians. That's that's described in the Gemara. And that included the women. It was everybody. Um, in fact, it was the women 
who soon after refused to contribute their wealth, their money to the golden calf. And instead, where do they contribute it to? They give it to the Mishkan. Another example that comes to mind, this is one that we're going to read tonight, the Eshet Chayil, um, the poem that we read every Friday night. She's described as a very wealthy woman, um, uh, if you if you read it, it's actually very beautiful. She's a wealthy woman who owns businesses that she manages. She has a vineyard. What else? I think there was another thing she has. She has servants that she manages. It talks about her managing her servants. It talks about her her dressing her family in fine clothing. Um, so I think that's plenty of examples. And that's our lesson in Tanakh here in Jewish Money Matters. Thanks to Dania. I'm so happy that you asked this question because it, you know, it kind of like it led me to do a little bit of due diligence. And I'm sure there's other examples. Are any of these cases other than perhaps the women living Mitzrayim, uh, maybe the Eshet Chayel, I'm not sure. Are they cases and examples of quote unquote independent wealth? Uh, I don't know, perhaps not. But that in and of itself is a pretty novel concept, as I mentioned before. All right, Dania, I hope that's good. And at least it leads you into further exploration on your end. We all want to make the most of our time, but sometimes our spiritual growth and our connection to our life's blueprint, the Torah, takes the back seat. Can we make this a priority even with a limited amount of time? If you're like me, you struggle with this, and you also know how misaligned this feels. I've found a solution thanks to the new book, Daily Aliyah by Rabbi Shlomo Ressler. In a few short minutes a day, I learn a Torah insight on the Daily Aliyah, which helps me feel connected to the timeless and practical messages of our Torah. This new year, join me in bringing the wisdom of the Torah to your daily life by spending a few minutes of your day reading the insights on Daily Aliyah. I treasure this book, and I know you will too. Get your copy at dailyaliyah.org. Proceeds go to support daily giving. That's dailyaliyah, A-L-I-Y-A-H dot org. Eliana asks via email. Eliana was responding to a resource that I recently put together for parents on how to teach your kids to manage money the Jewish way. And you can find that at yaeltrush.com forward slash kids. So if you're interested, it's a very neat resource. You can grab that at yaeltrush.com forward slash kids. So Eliana wrote back, um, that it was great. She says, yeah, El, this was great. Now, how do you answer them when they ask for something you genuinely can't afford? Like, why can't we all fly to Israel for the summer like the Cohen's? Or why can't I have three pairs of Adidas shoes like, even though that I could afford, but I would mean it would mean spending less on something else. So how do you answer to things like that? Okay, I think that's a great question, Eliana, and I'm glad you asked it. Because the truth is that we will sometimes have to say no to our kids. So how do we do it? Well, I like to say things like, I'm so glad for the Cohen's. <laughs> we can't fly to Israel this year, but perhaps another time. Right now, we're using our money to finance other priorities. And maybe finance is a big word for little kids, but so find a word, right? We're using our money to 
do other things. Um, yeah, finance priorities, those are big words. Um, but as they get older, I mean, they're not, they're, they'll soon understand. I think here the point is what's important in this conversation is saying that we're making an intentional trade-off. So you always want to communicate that, that this is not a priority now, but other things are. And happily, <laughs> you know, um, you don't want to you, you want to be happy about your tr- the trade offs that you're making. For example, we can we can buy an extra pair of shoes for everyone because we're saving up for a trip t- trip to Israel. Um, other people can have three pairs of Adidas shoes in our family. We believe one pair of shoes is fine or one pair of sneaker shoes is fine and one pair of Shabbos shoes or whatever it is. And that allows us to invest in other things that are more important to us. And you can give them examples. I have no problem with that. Um, And examples might be like your piano lessons, your art lessons, your bar mitzvah, having guests, remodeling the guest room, saving for a new car, the upcoming trip, the whatever it is. Um, I have no problem with showing kids that there are trade-offs to be made. What I would stay away from is the words like no, because we don't have it. Uh, No, because we can't afford it. The truth is because it's not entirely accurate. This is this is this is something I want you to think about it. Cuz the truth is that we do have it. We have access to money. It's just that we're choosing to spend it on other things that align better with our values. In fact, you might find that even if you had a bit big windfall of money and you suddenly had a lot more flexibility in your budget, you might find that having three pairs of Adidas shoes would still not sit very well with you and you'd rather put money somewhere else. So so that's what I want you to think about. The, the point is that you answer them with the truth, but be, be sure that you understand the truth first for yourself and that the feelings of shame or of in- inadequacy are not clouding that truth. Because remember, we're not very logical when it comes to money or emotional. So when the kids say things like this and then they compare us even to other people, that can be really triggering. The truth isn't, I don't have it. The truth isn't, I can't. The truth is not even we can't afford it. The truth is we have other financial priorities right now. Do you see? That is actually the truth. The truth is it's not within our family's values. The truth is we choose to spend our money in other things that are more meaningful for our family. The truth is when you're older, you will also make those choices. The truth is we're happily modeling what it means to be financially responsible and intentional with our money. The truth is that we're modeling putting our money where our values are. So you see the difference, right? So it's not, I don't have it. It's not, I can't. It's not, I can't afford it. The truth is we do have access to it. We we can. We're choosing not to. But you have to get crystal clear on that because again, the emotions cloud that truth. And it's an important difference. It's the difference between scarcity and abundance, actually. So don't be scared to tell them the truth. You're not going to scar them. You're not going to create a scarcity mindset. Be very cautious, though, not to fall into the trap of saying things, you know, like, those people or the Coens or refer to people in a disparaging way to people who spend differently than you or things 
of that nature or, oh, it's because they're rich and we're not or things like that, that is really can be really uh, detrimental or even saying things like we can't afford them. We can't afford it. Tell them the objective truth, which is I'm choosing to spend money on other things right now. That's modeling something very positive for them because that's exactly what they will need to do in life. Make intentional choices with their money. All right. So hopefully that's helpful. It's very good that you're thinking about this um, and you're, you know, choosing our words intentionally here can be really, really helpful. Uh, and and also being very open and calm when you say these things, right? So again, the feeling that it's 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 okay to talk about this, like there's no shame in it. Um, uh, normal, it normalizes. Um, one of the worst things you could do is like, kind of like, um, avoid it, right? Um, avoid the conversation. Again, kids kids know everything that's going on. So be very clear about your feelings and so that you can get to the real, you know, kind of that objective truth and, and be non-emotional about these things because they should be um, eventually, you know, if, if, we, if we train ourselves. So anyway, give them the truth. Good luck with that. Um, we have another kids-related question. Aviva asks via email. Um, and I think she may have asked this because she also got the the pdf or whatever that research that i put together yelltrush.com forward slash kids um she says just yesterday i was so upset that i have not been doing a good job of teaching my kids seven five and four about the value of things including food toys and clothes my kids step on the toys and books leave their things lying around as they don't really care won't eat leftovers my daughter who is seven even says oh shame mommy you're eating my leftovers i'm shocked that this is the attitude do you have any ideas as to how to instill more value into the things they already have and the food that's served aviva i think you're not alone i I think this is part of the journey they're still really little and it's good that you're thinking about these things and you're trying to be intentional about this you are not alone oh especially when it comes to leftovers my friend i mean dressing up leftovers to look like something new is an art form and good luck with that even if you dress them up and turn them into a completely different dish Let's say, for example, you took leftover chicken and you turned it into Chinese rice. Let me give you a tip from experience, especially as your kids get older. Make sure that you hide everything that could um, could uh, let them know that this was a... <laughs> <laughs> addressing uh, leftovers. So make sure your kids don't see the Tupperware from where that original chicken came from. Uh, even if they spot, even if they spot it, yeah, because if they spot it, uh, your efforts are doomed. This is, you know, from experience. But anyways, look, it's it's modeling and it's, it's similar to what I was telling um, Eliana before, not getting emotional. So watch out for those feelings, again, of inadequacy or anger or frustration. And it's not overnight. It's 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 constant modeling. It's a constant conversation and saying, you know, saying things like, take as much as you're going to eat. And I'm not saying force them to finish their plate. I'm not a fan of that. But sometimes kids start taking a ton from a platter and then they leave the whole thing intact on their plate. So it's up to us parents to guide them. Oh, that looks like about what your tummy can hold. When you finish that, you can always serve yourself more. For now, let's just work on what's on your plate, right? And it's saying things like, shame, this book ripped because it was left on the floor and someone stepped on it. How about we take five minutes every day after dinner to put all the books back on the bookshelf, right? And remind them, oh, we really want this book up, those books up on the book 
shelf because they break and it's so sad when they break then we can't read them right or you know this is your new dress uh if you use it to do art you will likely get it stained to do art you have to wear something else or to eat spaghetti and meatballs you have to wear something else you know things like that and look as they get older believe me they'll start learning the consequences themselves but you have to enforce them you know it's up to us so you know it's a constant conversation i still have these conversations with my teenagers just recently one of my teens lost his retainer i think i maybe have mentioned this on the show oh too bad you're gonna have to pay for it he wasn't happy i mean who's happy you know by taking your savings that you earned working for camp to pay your retainer right but he knew in fact he told me that he remembered when we had left the ortho, the orthodontist office, whenever it was a year or two back, and with his new retainer, he said he I don't remember this, but he said, I he remembers vividly that I told him that if he lost his retainer, he would be responsible for paying for it. And it sounds like something I would say. <laughs> now that he paid for it, you know, do you think he's going to be losing it again? I don't know. Probably not so fast. Same thing. Same thing happened with a, with a watch. One of my kids wanted a watch when he went to school out of town and I got him a watch and what the watch broke or disappeared. I don't even remember what it was. Oh, so sad. <laughs> and the next time he came, mommy, I need a watch. I need to know what time it is. Oh man, what happened to your watch? Which watch are you purchasing now? What's your budget, right? So he had to look at how much money he, has, he had available and how much he wanted to spend on a watch and buy it for himself. And I think he still owns the watch. <laughs> so some kids, you know, people learn with consequences and that's what adult life is going to give them, gives to all of us. Some kids are naturally more careful with their things and understand the value of, you know, money and certain things more, more than others. It's all a learning process. The key here is not to get angry, not to get emotional, to be cool and collected and just model and teach them by enforcing consequences empathetically, not with anger or reprimand, etc. And don't be scared of enforcing those consequences. You know, oh no, that's so sad. The Monopoly cards are broken, they're ripped, and now you can't play. Do you think you could now play this game if you hadn't ripped the cards? Buy it again, mommy, Like right? Mm, we're going to have to wait until you're older and can remember not to rip the Monopoly cards and to use them just for playing the game. So did you hear the tone? Like, it's just, it's just matter of fact, right? No emotion. <laughs> and bottom line, Aviva, look, remember, one day they're going to get married and there'll be someone else's problem. <laughs> I'm actually kidding about that. You you want to make them you want to try your best to make turn them into mentions before they go and and become somebody else's problem. But no, really, we want to try our best that they're mentions and they're and Hashem helps us. And ultimately, some will turn out to be more conscious, others less. But for the most part, they will be okay. Good luck with that. And let me know if you have any questions. And good luck with the entire parenting journey. <laughs> it looks like you're in the thick of it. I know. And that is a wrap, my friends. Thanks to Dania, Eliana, and Aviva for your questions. And thanks to everyone for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcast. It takes 30 seconds. I promise and I will pick a reviewer of the week and give them a 20 minute session with me. If you're a business owner and you've been wanting to grow your business, but you've been feeling alone, lacking guidance, strategy, a roadmap, support, Joyce, Azria and I have designed a mastermind 
for you. It's called Maximize Six Months Immersive with us working on your business so that you can take it to the next level, but of course, without compromising on your values. We're taking applications for this experience at yaeltrush.com forward slash maximize. I want to wish you all a gemar khatima tova, an easy and meaningful fast, and a wonderful, wonderful year ahead.